Good morning. Can you, you hear me? Good. I, I figured out the mic this uh, service. Uh, it is really wonderful to be with you all here at Grace Presbyterian, and it's wonderful to say these words. It's been several years, up until like an hour ago, before I was able to say those words uh, when I preached at the first service, but it has been too long. We have longed to see you and to be here with you. Uh, I feel like Paul, in opening up uh, the letter of Romans, saying things have hindered me, uh, but, but if we could have, we would have been here much sooner to be with you all. This is a church that is very dear to us and full of just uh, loved ones and faces that we have, we've longed for. So it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here opening God's word with you this morning. Now, I'll say, when I, when I, when I asked Marshall what, uh, what we were going through to, to preach for him this week, he's, oh, it's great, it's, uh, uh, eight days that changed the world, Matthew, last week of the life of Jesus in Matthew, I'm like, awesome, this is great, Jesus, the Gospels, no problem. And he's like, yeah, just pick any, any passage out of Matthew 23 or 24. I was like, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I had the option of like, Jesus calling you all a bunch of hypocrites or talking about the end times. Uh, it's, that's what those two, that's what those two chapters are. And so I thought I'd do both and do right the, <laughs> just that wedge right in the middle there. Um, uh, but really, though, uh, it's, this, is a, this is a crucial passage in the Gospels, and so what I want us to do is just bow our heads in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to get our hearts into this text and get this text into our hearts. Holy Father, you are righteous and good and kind, and we need you so much. We need your Spirit to be at work, forming us and transforming us, opening our, not only our ears, but our hearts, Lord, I pray, I pray against any distractions at this time. Our hearts are so restless with so many different things when coming in this room. I pray that you would quiet them with your love. And focus us in on the one thing during this moment, which is you present to us in your word, in grace. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen. So, uh, I read about this reporter last week, uh, Nigel Reynolds, a very, very English name. He was the first journalist who, to ever interview J.K. Rowling uh, way back when, when her first book, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, came out. And as a thank you, um, she gave him uh, a copy. She sent him a copy in the mail, a f first edition at the time copy. And he thought, well, okay, whatever, this book is really actually not that good, and I, the hype's kind of overblown. So he tossed it. Right, he tossed this thing, and now if you look up like the retail value on like a first edition Harry Potter, it's like something absurd, like 65 grand or something like that. Uh, because it did not conform to this man's expectations of what a hit, what a classic, what a timeless, I don't know, collectible would be, he tossed it in the trash uh, like, so much, like so much refuse. I bring up this cheesy story because in this text, we're presented with a possibility that you and I may be tempted to do the very same thing with Jesus and the gospel. See, I don't have a big fancy setup to this sermon beyond that cheesy little story, and my outline doesn't even rhyme or alliterate, but what I want us to do today is get into this text with the awareness that these are serious things. Jesus is, this is one of Jesus' most poignant, pressing, and challenging pleas in all of the gospel. And if you do not heed his words today, if you do not reckon with the possibility that you yourself could be guilty of these things, then the danger is one of spiritual shipwreck. You can lose your soul. 
But if you do reckon with them, if you do heed them, the hope is that you will gain God himself. Now, in order to do this, in order to get ourselves into this text and really wrestle with the possibility for our own souls, um, I'm going to work this with kind of a three-point outline uh, with just under three headings. Murdering the prophets, you are not willing, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And under that, under that order, we're just going to explore and let the text explore us. Y- y'all okay with that? So, uh, in order to see that murdering the prophets, let's set some st- let's set some context. First, again, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and last week we talked about the I believe the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and and, and really what we're doing is 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 we're we're feeling out Jesus as a potential king, as a potential Messiah, uh, and and what's happening in this week is as a as a series of increasing controversies and showdowns and fights as the temperature is turned up on Jesus' ministry. And people are trying to suss out, what kind of a king is this guy going to potentially be? Will we follow him? Right? How has he come to save Israel? And so what we see here is a progression in Jesus' ministry and a progression in the presentation of Jesus. See, Matthew, the whole gospel of Matthew, presents Jesus as the successive fulfillment and reenactment of all of Israel's history. So he comes in the Sermon on the Mount as a new Moses delivering a new law. He comes offering wisdom as a new Solomon, a new king. How do you live in God's kingdom? He comes as a new Elisha, leading a band of prophets in his wake and causing a bit of a ruckus. And now in this passage, he is presented to us as a new Jeremiah, a prophet who in chapter 23, the whole of 23, is a searing indictment of the religious practices and the interpretations of the elite scribes of Israel. And in this sense, he's adopting the role of a prophet and a covenant prosecutor, saying this is the covenant Israel has with her God, and here are the many breaches of faith you've been engaging in. Now, for the bulk of this chapter, Jesus has been addressing mostly the teachers and the lawyers, the scribes, the leaders of Israel, placing the bulk of the responsibility there because they are supposed to teach the people. But here, in this text that we've just read, He actually turns for a moment and addresses Jerusalem as a whole. Now, why is that significant? Because Jerusalem is significant. It's not just any old city in Israel. It's not just the one city we all know the name of. Jerusalem is the holy city. It's Israel's capital in both a political and in a spiritual sense. This is the city that God has set apart by placing his name on it, as it says in Deuteronomy. This is the place where he's placed his temple, his home, his house, his palace, the seat from which God the king rules. And in the temple, he promised Israel, if you come to me and you turn to it and pray here and offer sacrifices here, I will hear and heal you and save you. This is where he is known and this is where the law should be clearest. Isaiah 54 and 62 talks about Jerusalem as the mother of Israel herself. So what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem, spiritually speaking. It filters out and represents the whole. And so what he's really doing is indicting the whole of the people. Now, this is maybe surprising to us after last week because when he entered into Jerusalem, he entered in with a claim. Son of David. Potential Messiah, here's, here's palm fronds, here's all, these, here's all this fanfare. You would think, oh, the people are welcoming him, but, but Jesus already knows that, that really a remnant might have been excited, but that's going to turn really quick. 
And like much of Israel's history, this rem- these people will be led down a familiar path of rejecting God and his word. And this really is a familiar path. Jesus says in earlier, pa- like just right before this, that Israel has a habit of murdering her prophets. Right? The prophet Jeremiah himself is in prison because he preached God's word clearly and he was thrown down a well. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was ordered to be sawn in two by the wicked king Manasseh. And then right before this, Jesus specifically names the prophet Zechariah, who was murdered in the temple. First, Second Chronicles 24-21 speaks of it. And why? Because Zechariah told the wicked king Joash, because he had abandoned the commandments of God, God would abandon him. And so Joash apparently didn't like that, and he struck him down for speaking the truth, and, and he himself was struck down by his own servants according to the word of the Lord, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. But this is a long-established tradition. And why is it a long-established tradition? Well, it's very simple. Israel is just like everybody else. They don't like hearing what they don't want to hear. You ever heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger? That's what prophets are. They're messengers of a word of the Lord that is not always welcome. And they say it very clearly and boldly. They give them solutions that they don't like to their problems, like turn and repent and quit making false alliances with pagan nations and worshiping foreign gods and God knows what else. Your decisions will bring bad consequences upon you. No, I don't want to hear that, and so they killed them. As a side note, anybody who wants to sign up for the role of of a prophetic truth teller for like clout or cars or money, that's not really how that works. You you get different prizes if you're a real prophet. Now the danger here is that some of us can read these texts and think those foolish Israelites back then and there, thank God I know better. Do you? It's actually funny, like five verses earlier, uh, Jesus actually castigates the, the, the rulers and says, you, you like to tell yourselves a story that we wouldn't have been like our, like our fathers who stoned the prophets who we've built nice tombs for them. He says, but they're your fathers. You're their kids. Of course you're going to do exactly what they did. Right? And this is where you have to recognize that Jesus isn't condemning Jerusalem back then and there. He's condemning a tendency that lurks in our own souls here and now today. Right? There is a tendency now, how many modern-day prophets, how many truth-tellers in a sick culture and a society that actually in so many ways hates God and hates neighbors, when they hear a word, marginalize, imprison, or even kill those prophets? Right? Aside from even the social and political level, think at the personal level. Right? How many of us have ever tried to tell a friend we knew we're going down a bad path and we were scared to because you knew they weren't going to want to listen to it? And you didn't want to be the messenger that, that was killed. Right? How many of y'all, I mean, how many of you are actually that person who everybody knows, well, he doesn't take criticism very well, so be careful. How many of you have been in that marriage counseling session, right, where this counselor was making all sorts of sense until they agreed with your spouse? And then we don't go to that counselor anymore. We don't kill the prophets, we just sometimes fire them. We love prophets when they condemn other people's sins, not so much when they question our own. And this brings us to the next thought. But you were unwilling. 
right? Jesus speaks of himself longing to gather Israel to himself like a mother hen gathers her children, her little chicks to herself in the face of some impending disaster. And we'll come back to that image. It's important. But he says, you were unwilling. They wouldn't. Now, why wouldn't Israel be gathered to Jesus? Two reasons, at least, I think. First, much of Israel was looking for a false salvation, which leads to the second point, much of Israel was trusting in a false sense of assurance, both of which led them to reject a true salvation and a true savior. Let's tackle those both in turn. The first, the people of Israel were looking for a different, very different kind of Messiah, a very different kind of anointed king than the one that showed up. You, you all might have talked about this or seen this, but Israel at the time was living under the boot of the Romans, and they had been living under the boot of pagan nations for centuries. And so, of course, yes, they knew part of this was for their own sins, but part of the salvation they were longing for was a socio-historical, political salvation where, the, where the, the, the righteous king, the son of David, would come, yes, purify the people, but also drive out the pagans out of our holy nation. Cleanse it. Reclaim our nation. Jesus, though, came preaching about a kingdom, uh, but, but it was deeper than a mere socio-historical kingdom. It, it wasn't aiming just at solutions that, that just happened to shuffle the board of which human ruler was in power at the moment. He was actually aiming at a deeper ruler, the ruler of this world, Satan himself, whose tendencies and whose kingdom had its tendrils, not just in the hearts of the pagan nations, which was very clear, but also within Israel herself, who also had tendencies towards idolatry, towards greed, towards hatred, because they have human hearts. Second, connected to this, many of the Jews of Jesus' day had fallen into the trap of prior times, which is taking the signs of election, taking the signs of God's blessing, the signs of God's presence, like the vows, the laws, the clean laws, the temple itself, and turning them into, from signs of gracious blessing into signs of self-possession and pride and false protection, twisting them to the point where this, the reality that they were pointing to, that these are signs of, the reality shows up stares them in the face, and they can't see it. They can't see him. And again, we have to ask ourselves a question, how different am I really? This is no time to pat ourselves on the back. How many of us are left dissatisfied with a Jesus, with a Savior, with a salvation, when he doesn't bring us the salvation we think we need most? When he doesn't show up and fix the material the political, the economic issues that press in on us with the most, uh, the most force in the given moment. How many of us reject his invitation until, at the personal level, until he fixes our marriage, until he fixes our aching bodies, until he fixes my problem, kid, until he deals with my depression and anxiety, until he deals with my extremely dysfunctional family of origin, until he deals with my, I don't know, my GPA or, 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 or the fact that I lack a significant other. And it's not that he doesn't care about these things. He obviously does. The Bible speaks to all of these things, and the gospel has an effect that speaks to our marriage, speaks to our finances, speaks to our economics, speaks to our politics, speaks to our mental health. All of these things matter to Jesus. Don't hear me say that. 
But for so many of us, there's a danger of conflating and reducing the work of Jesus and his person to whatever our biggest felt need is so that we miss or reject him when he dares to suggest that there might be a bigger issue at work in our hearts and our lives than the one that we think is at work. Right? Like the fact that we worship other gods like money and sex and power. The fact that we hate our neighbors. The fact that we're narcissists or self-centered or obsessed with the approval of our peers and culture. The fact that we're racist, the fact that we're classist, the fact that we're sexist, or the fact that we're obsessed with being better than the people we think are those things and are super self-righteous about it. I don't know what it is that actually keeps you from worshiping and loving Jesus. But what if it's that that he wants to fix first? Second, and this often builds on it, how many of us are wrongly trusting in a confused religious performance of God's, God's commands in order to bring his favor upon us or bring about the salvation that we're really hoping for. I don't know what it is for you. Right? If the salvation you're looking for is social and political, then your assurance may be coming from your social and political performance of the faith with, I don't know, the, the, the right Instagram posts, the right news sources share, the right vote, the right, I don't know what you are tempted by. And that's going to bring it about. Or maybe... If the salvation you're looking for is primarily about your family relationships, then you'll be tempted to trust in all of your oh-so-regimented and perfect family routines and programs. Not that that happens on the North Shore. Again, it's not that these things don't matter. God cares about our families. God cares about our politics. God cares about real-life things. This is not just about some spiritual by-and-by that leaves us you know, aloof from real things happening in the world, real pain. But what I'm saying is, if you're looking for an ultimate salvation in these things, they might determine the Savior that you're willing to trust in. And he might not look like the Jesus who actually exists. And so what's the consequence of this? What Jesus tells them, your house will be left to you desolate. Now, what's he talking about? What house is he talking about? The house he's talking about, I think here, is actually the house that's in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, the temple, God's holy house. And what he, what he says, what he goes on to predict is exactly what happens. In AD 70, the Romans come in and wreck shop, and they destroy it. And the thing is, this is both the judgment of God upon Israel and the natural consequences of the road that they were pursuing. See, because Jerusalem and its leaders and its people rejected Jesus and his alternative kingdom, they kept pursuing the same things they always wanted. In about 60-something A.D., they found themselves a political messiah. They rebelled against Rome, and then Rome did what it does best, which is kill people and, and, and dominate, and then grind you into the dust so you never try it again. And that's what happened. See, this is the thing. When you choose something other than God, a salvation other than the one offered in the real Christ, well, the scary thing is God might give it to you. Some of God's worst judgment is when it says he hands them over and then lets the consequences unfold. So your obsessive family life, instead of it becoming a life-giving rhythm, it becomes a crushing burden that burns you and your children out. Right? You, you, Lord knows we've all seen what a, a political obsession that takes over a church can look like. Right, That can destroy families, that can destroy relationships, that can destroy all of it. 
witness. Worst of all, worst of all is these things can destroy your relationship and your communion with the living God, the real God, the triune God who exists because you prefer some false God that you made up in your own mind. So what then is the solution? What's the hope? Well, it's what Jesus hints at at the end of this text. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not just a random phrase Jesus made up. It's a, it's a quote from Psalm 118, a very significant psalm, where, where the psalmist is singing of the steadfast love and salvation of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, and about entering the courts of the righteous. And at the end, the psalmist sings about his salvation, but there's a key line, verse 22, that just comes right before what he quoted. And it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus uses this verse of himself several times. The image is of a quarry where people are gra- gathering stones to build, build a home, to build a, to build a building, and they, they find, I don't, know, I don't know, a lumpy, misshapen, uh, kind of ugly stone, not the kind of stone you want to build something significant with, and they toss it aside, and yet somebody comes along, picks it up, and actually makes it the cornerstone of the whole building that the whole thing is built off of. And now two verses later, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the rest of the verse says, we bless you from the house of the Lord. There's a building, and there's a house of the Lord, and there's a cornerstone. What's Jesus saying here? By invoking this psalm right here, I believe that Jesus is saying that after the desolation of Israel, after the destruction of the temple, there will be a rebuilding. Actually, it'll happen before that. The temple of the Lord, the house of God, where God dwells with his people, will be rebuilt. Only this time it's going to be rebuilt around Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the stone who was rejected. Which incidentally, this is what 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 2 also say. See, Jesus is pointing ahead to the day in which he will return in judgment and salvation, and people will see him and recognize that he is the cornerstone. On that day, the Bible says Jesus will return in glory and he will actually judge and redeem all the things that our hearts really long for. He will rebuild and restore our families, our psyches, our communities, our, all of it. He's going to do it. But the reality is on that day, the only people who will welcome his coming are those who welcomed him now in the present. The Bible says that on that day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow, and all this will be for the glory of God the Father. But there are some people who are going to be bowing in joy and gratitude for a day for which they've been longing for so long, and others will be bowing and weeping and gnashing their teeth because that day of judgment's finally come, and they haven't wanted it at all. So the question becomes, how, how do we become those who welcome that day now? How are we those who... Say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord now in anticipation of that day. How do we see him? This is where I think we look once more at that image that Jesus uses for himself. See, Jesus describes himself, and really God himself, as a mother hen who welcomes her baby chicks in the face of an impending disaster to protect them and to long to gather them up. And I was was talking to a friend of mine uh, PCA pastor out in um, California, Josh Hani, and he says, what you really see here in this, in this text is the heart of God. And you see three things. You see, you see longing, you see lament, and you, you really see love. 
right? In Jesus, we see a God who actually longs for us, who longs for this world, who longs for his people, and longs for a reconciled relationship. And this is the, this is the cause for his lament. He grieves because we reject it. He grieves because we turn aside. He grieves because so often we, we long for other things more than him. And this pain is, is provoked by God's actually great love for us. That's the thing, guys. When Jesus utters these phrases, he's throwing down, he's throwing down judgment. Yes, but this isn't, this isn't coming out of some place of hateful rejection. This is coming out of a, of a heart that deeply loves you. I don't know when the last time you heard this. It was probably just last week. God loves you. God desires you. God longs for you. You, the actual you. And this is what we see in Jesus' heart as he comes and he says, I would gather you up as a mother hen. And how do we say this? Because I know it's very hard to believe that at times. In all of your confusion, in all of our doubts, in all of our fears, in all of our ugliest moments that only we see, that he actually longs for us this way, here's how you know. The greatest proof is when you remember why Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. He says in Matthew 16, 21, he says, um, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Jesus didn't come just predicting that it might happen to him, that his own death might occur like every other prophet that's come before. No, he comes purposefully as the culmination of that long history, not just of prophets, but in order that he might end it, not just as a prophet, but as a messiah. See, Israel's prophets came loaded down with grief at the weight of Israel's sins as they called her to repent and turn to God. But Jesus came as God himself, who weighed himself down not just with grief over sins, but with the guilt of sins, the responsibility for sins, in order that in his death on the cross, he would pay for their sins in his place in our place, Jesus comes as the temple, the house where God dwells, so that he himself might be made desolate on the cross for our sins, for our idolatry, for our rejection. He was rejected in order that we might be reconciled, that we might be made right and drawn into a relationship with him. Because why? Because he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is the Lord's heart. The Lord longs to draw you in. The Lord laments. The Lord loves his wayward people, even you and I. And I say this, I say this about your worst moment. I say this about your most hateful moment. I say this about your darkest grief and shame. God, that is when God longs for you. That is when God would draw you in. And so when you start to see who God is, for who he is. No other salvation is good enough. No other savior can suffice. No other end can supplant the end of knowing and being in communion with this God. And so you start to see him, and when he would gather you in, you allow him. And he brings you under his wings like a mother hen, and he shelters you. And you are safe, and you are home. And that moment you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bow your heads with me.
you are holy, you are good, you're merciful and mighty, and you love us, and you long for us, and you draw us to yourself. And I pray right now that in this time, in this place, we would be drawn to you, we would commune with you, we would praise you and know you by grace. In Christ's name we pray.